Uh, today we're, we're um, starting a short series on the book of Ruth. And um, we wanted to look at a story, at uh, a narrative. And what more delightful story is there in the Bible than in the book of Ruth? It was probably written uh, in the time of King David or, or King Solomon, uh, but we don't know who wrote it. But whoever they were, they were very skilled. It's very beautifully written. And it's, it's not a mythology. It's not poetry. It's an historic book. So it's history about real people. It's a simple, elegant account of ordinary people who showed extraordinary faith and were used as a result by God in amazing ways. It could be a story about me or you, and that's why I think it's such a popular book. We can see ourselves in it. So let's dig in. Our story begins. Now this actually just... By the way, this is a photo of modern Bethlehem with the hills of Moab in the background. It's a very clear day and you look right across the Dead Sea, which is obviously out of sight, to the hills of Moab. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. This first part of Ruth is very terse. It sets the scene so quickly, it's easy to miss what's going on here. It's especially hard for those of us who live in a totally different culture. So let's slow down and try to understand this setting. Now this story occurs during the reign of judges in Israel. What does that mean? During this period, life was very tough. The Israelites were barely scratching out a living. And they were beset on every side by enemies. They didn't have a unified nation. So people had to stick together in families and extended families. Something like a famine could spell disaster for a whole community. In fact... Uh, I heard recently that at this time, up to 60 days a year, people went without food. That's how hard it was. If this reminds you of the stories of Abraham or Isaac, this severe famine coming upon the land, it should. The author actually uses exactly the same phrase to introduce this as in Genesis. And that's the only other place this phrase occurs. In the Bible. So it's easy to see then why this unnamed man would take his family away to somewhere that offered refuge during a famine. Unfortunately, Moab, like Egypt and Gerar, where Abraham and uh, Isaac went, offers dubious safety to God's people. Israel and Moab's relationship throughout history is complex and fraught. You might remember that Moab was settled by Lot's descendants. However, despite this, they did their best to obstruct Israel's journey to the promised land. 
resulting in Moses declaring, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants for ten generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. These nations did not welcome you with food and water when you came out of Egypt. Instead, they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in distant Aram Naharaim to curse you. Still, as they say, desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, I know I'm not the only one here in this room who left my hometown to find a more secure future, right? In fact, I've done it more than once. So who else here has left their hometown to find a secure future? Yeah? Has anyone not done that? Has anyone here who's, 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 who's got a job, who's graduated, <laughs> has anyone here who's graduated not done that? So in other words, did anyone here grow up on the Gold Coast? Nope. So we're all migrants. <laughs> so, and it's tough, right? It's tough to make your way in a new place. And back at this time, moving country was tough, not because of visa requirements, becoming a citizen, um, but because of lack of family, lack of connections. You were really an outsider. And so your situation was perilous. Better than starvation, though. So who were these mysterious migrants in this story? The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Did you know that Elimelech means God is king or God is my king? That seems like a, a pretty faithful sort of name, doesn't it? And Naomi means pleasant one, which is also a nice name, right? You can imagine the hopes of the parents of this couple, naming their children with these names. The names of the two sons, uh, they're often interpreted in various ways, quite negative, but they actually seem to be nothing more than typical names for the time, because this is history. It's not fiction. These are not archetypal characters in a myth. They're just ordinary, everyday people like you or me, trying to survive in difficult times. Unfortunately for this family, things don't go well in their place of refuge. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Marlon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons, or her husband. Even from our modern perspective, this, this seems to like a pretty horrible sort of situation, doesn't it? For Naomi. And, and not to mention for Ruth and, and Orpah. But, but in that day and age, it was actually far, far worse. You see, in the ancient Near East, people didn't function in society as individuals like we do 
that we each have, you know, our own social security network, our own license, our own ability to navigate law and uh, the society in general independently. But back then they operated as a family unit. The head of the family unit was the patriarch, the oldest male. He was the one who made the decisions. He was the one who bore the responsibility. He could enter into contracts. He could protect. He could provide for the family. He could buy land, etc. That's why verse 1 says that it was Elimelech who left his home and went to Moab and the family went along with him. They didn't have any choice. That's how it worked. When a woman's husband died, her interface to society transferred to either his brother's or his parents, if they were very young, or to her own sons, the eldest first. Obviously, in Moab, Naomi had only her sons to rely on once Elimelech died. And fortunately, those two sons found wives, and with them the hope of families of their own. And if if they'd had families, then Naomi would have been okay. She had men to look after her. That's how society worked. Okay, I'm not making a value judgment here. This is just how things worked. However, ten long years passed with no children, and then horrifyingly, and it would have been horrifying, both these sons died with no children. Naomi found herself now with no genuine social identity. All the men that could connect her to society, who could protect her, who could negotiate for her, had died. On top of that, she still had two daughters-in-law that she, as the elder, had some sort of responsibility for. Naomi's life, once so full and secure, had been completely stripped away of everything but the burdens of responsibility. What could she do? Then Naomi heard in Moab, that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. At last, some good news. The famine was over. It can't have been hard for Naomi to decide to return to Bethlehem, can it? At least there she had relatives and and countrymen. At least there she was familiar with the culture. At least there the law demanded protection for widows. We don't know whether it did in Moab, but probably not, because Israel was very, very progressive. But what could she do with her daughters-in-law? They seemed determined to come with her. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she'd been living and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. Naomi's clever. Instead of trying to persuade her daughters-in-law to abandon her while they're still all surrounded by the familiarity of the last ten years, and perhaps then persuading her to stay, Naomi gives them 
a taste of life on the road before abruptly halting in the middle of nowhere and confronting them with a choice. Still not an easy choice. Naomi and her girls clearly have a deep and genuine love for one another. And of course, they bawl their eyes out. And since they're Middle Easterners, it was probably very noisy. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? Of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. So at first the daughters-in-law are adamant that they will remain with Naomi. But then Naomi explains the hard facts of their situation. While they stay with Naomi, they have no hope of ever being part of a whole family again, of a family that actually can navigate its way in society. Naomi is too old to provide that for them. Their only hope is another marriage, and the only way they can secure that is from the safety of their parents' houses. It's a harsh reality that the world separates people who have a deep abiding love for one another. That's what's happening here. And it still happens. The refugees that that Beck was talking about, I'm sure, experience that. We've all experienced that, leaving home, moving to a new place. And we always will experience that until the end of times. So what do the girls decide? And again, they wept together and Orpah kissed her mother goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. So one of them, Orpah, is sensible and heads home with a broken heart. The other, Ruth, will not let go of Naomi. But why not? What does Naomi have to offer? Look, Naomi said to her, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me ever so severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Imagine the scene. Two women, dusty, tired, hungry, 
The dust on their faces is streaked with tears. The mud dripping on their clothes. They cling together, barely standing. Behind them is nothing but peril and poverty, and ahead of them, well, for the younger woman, it's, it's nothing but strangers and poverty, and probably a lonely death. For the older, well, death among friends. There's nothing special about these two women. They're poor, they're, they're abandoned, they're, they're weak. And yet the declaration that Ruth gives here, it's one of the great declarations of the Bible. Up there with Joshua's declaration of family faith, of, with Mary's song to the Lord, and with Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. In this declaration, Ruth aligns herself with Naomi, with her people, with her God. And despite Ruth's only experience of Yahweh being a God who is silent, silent in the midst of famine and death, Ruth makes herself his faithful servant. Ruth somehow sees beyond Naomi's emptiness to the providence of God and she places her trust in that. Naomi has given her no reason to think that God will reward her faithfulness but she gives it anyway. Like the other great faith leaders, Ruth throws herself into the arms of God trusting in his goodness. Like Abraham sacrificing Isaac, Joshua refusing to bow to circumstance, Moses confronting Pharaoh, Rahab helping the spies, and Joshua. Um, I've already said that. That's how Ruth abandons herself to Yahweh's love. But we shouldn't look at Orpah as a failure. She's merely being reasonable. Nor should we see Naomi as unreasonably bitter. She, she still has faith in Yahweh. In fact, she trusts Yahweh so much that she, she trusts that she has the power and the authority to bless Orpah in Moab. So she believes so firmly in Yahweh's power that she thinks that he rules the entire world, not just Israel. Naomi has simply come to the conclusion that God has no plans that involve her. So she's going to be empty. So the two of them continued on their journey. And they came to Bethlehem. The entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? 
So back in a familiar environment, Naomi's free to lament. You might think it unfair of Naomi to say that she's come back empty when she has the faithful Ruth by her side, but it's Naomi's grief speaking. While Ruth's name means comfort, she has yet to provide any real comfort to Naomi. We'll see that, but not today. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring, at the beginning of the barley harvest. So this is the author's comment. They finish this part of the story with a hint of the fullness to come. Naomi does have Ruth by her side, not yet knowing what a blessing this is. And the barley harvest is about to begin. Mm, the barley harvest, we all look forward to that. Don't we? <laughs> and this is going to be a good barley harvest, this one. So, that's the end of chapter one. What can we take from this account? What are we meant to learn? Certainly the contours of this story are familiar. The way God empties people's lives before he can fill them with his blessings. We're all familiar with that, right? That's happened to us. We've been emptied and then filled. The emptying is painful. Filling is great. But is there more? I think there is. They just have to move on. Yep. They just had to move on to the next stage and phase in their lives. Yes, there was grief. Yes, there was suffering. Yes, there was brokenness. But it was time to say, right, what's next? Yeah. And I think, I think Ruth is clearly the, the exemplary character here, right? The character we're supposed to follow. She not only made the most difficult decision, but she got to give an impressive speech about it. So she must be the most important person. She was monologuing. And the decision she made to trust in God despite circumstances, well, it's a decision that we too are so often called to make, right? Do you think Ruth felt the thrill of great historic circumstance at work when she decided to go to Bethlehem with, with Naomi, standing on that dusty road in the middle of nowhere? Of course she didn't. She didn't know that she would be the grandmother of the greatest king of Israel and, and, and more than you know. And, and, um, and you too know that, that your actions, you can't tell where your actions are going to lead, right? Mm-hmm. When you make a decision, do you see, you know, in a hundred years... The world is going to be changed by this decision. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, when we're teenagers, we think everything's (laughs) this flavour ice cream in a hundred years. It will change the world. Global (laughs) warming. Um but but Ruth didn't know that. She didn't know that she would be part of the ancestry of the saviour of the world. She made a decision on a dusty road with tears muddying her face and her throat sore from wailing. She was almost certainly tired and sore and hungry and scared. She couldn't have she could have chosen a slightly easier path and returned with Orpah, but she chose the harder path. 
Not because it was noble or glorious or important, but because it was faithful. Faithful to her dead husband. Faithful to Naomi. Faithful to Yahweh. To the one true God. Faithful. That's it. Ruth showed faith in the face of famine. She clung to God despite his silence. And God used her. He transformed her simple act of faith into a crucial building block of his great plan of salvation. He can do that with our simple faithfulness too. But we need to take that step of faith, even in the face of silence. If we can trust God when he's silent, if we can trust God when things seem to be at their lowest, then he can use us for his glorious plan. And he will. So did we want to read the the passage straight through? Yes. Yep. So let's read the passage straight through because we really want you to feel the power of this story. So, Tim, could you sit up and read this, please? In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpha, and the other woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way... Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law. Goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. 
Look, Mary said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. The rooster replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? the woman asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Thanks, Tim. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many days when it feels that feel wasted. Like Naomi, we feel like we were once full, but are now empty. But we see in Ruth that if we keep stepping out in faith, if we keep supporting one another with your loving kindness, then you will use that to fill the world with your goodness. Help us to show our faith by loving one another, by trusting you. Amen. Mm-hmm.